Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Conversation in Veterinary Pathology, the ACVP podcast, brought to you by the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. The purpose of this podcast is to bring the veterinary pathology community together to bolster our connections and spread knowledge. This segment aims to highlight those in our field at all stages of their careers, from all backgrounds and subspecialties. So welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Hannah Atkins, and this is Dr. Carolyn Labriola. Welcome. Today's guest is Dr. Allison Watson, an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. Dr. Watson is a diagnostic anatomic veterinary pathologist and the section head of the necropsy service in the Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory. In today's conversation with Dr. Watson, we will learn more about her expertise in diagnostic pathology, running a multifaceted diagnostic lab in Colorado, and teaching. But before we begin, this episode of the podcast contains a section of a sensitive subject that may be upsetting to some listeners. As a commitment to supporting mental health and accessibility for our audience, we would like to alert that animal abuse is mentioned between the times of 15 minutes and 20 seconds and 19 minutes and 30 seconds. In addition, sections of the audio that contain this material will have a vocal indication at the beginning and the end of segments. We thank you for listening and being a part of our community. Now let's get to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure, yeah, thank you for asking. I am so excited to hear your experiences you are a bit newer in your teaching career. Yes, definitely. Um, I finished residency in 2019. So um, it's crazy. I've already been here four years, but uh, definitely newer uh, on the career path for sure. When did you first flirt with the idea of teaching? What inspired me to be a pathologist was actually my teacher. So I envisioned a career where I was also teaching and kind of went back and forth uh, during residency. Uh, my residency was really diagnostic heavy, so kind of flirted with the idea of, you know, being just purely diagnostics, uh, but uh, loved teaching students on the necropsy floor and really doing the hands-on teaching. So um, when I was looking for jobs, looked for careers where I could mostly do diagnostics and then uh, teach as well. And this position at yeah. Colorado State opened up, and here you are. Yep, yeah, it was it was perfect timing, so happy to be here. And you came here right out of residency, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. Coming into that, coming in relatively fresh, I would imagine. You know, you, you've been through a number of years of schooling to mm -hmm. get to this point, um, but you must have some new influences from your senior colleagues here. How have they guided you as you begin your teaching career? Yeah, and I, I actually have a, I, it's probably not unique, but I did go to veterinary school here at Colorado State. So uh, a number of my colleagues were actually my teachers and the ones that inspired me to be a pathologist. So it's it's been really, it's just, it just feels crazy that I'm, work with uh, my teachers when I was a young vet student and my first pathology course. Um, Dr. Mason is, uh, teaches that, um, Gary Mason, and he, it, it's, it's cool to just be able to just go down the hallway and, and ask him questions about cases or how he would approach a topic when teaching students. Uh, so I have, you know, those those colleagues that I've known for a long time or that taught me as a veterinary student, but then we also have you know, newer pathologists as well that have been here just a little bit longer than I have. So it's, it's really helpful to be able to get perspectives from both kind of mid-career mid faculty and then uh, folks that have been here a lot longer. And we... At CSU, we have a teaching coordinator consultant, basically. So we're able to, you know, show him our lectures and get feedback. Uh, so that's been really helpful, too. Uh, but really, it's just still kind of blows my mind that I work with um, the teachers that taught me. 
Did you tell them when you were in veterinary school that you might be interested in teaching? Yes. Well, I did. Um, besides my pathology colleagues, we also work with Andrew West, who is a teaching expert, to put it lightly. But he um, he is willing to look over our lectures or talk through uh, syllabus, learning objectives, and that's really great as a new teacher. So that's something I'm nervous about. That's an excellent resource to have for all of you. It really is. He's He actually did a webinar recently for ACVP, but uh, he will do uh, lunch learning sessions in the fall for everyone on different topics, and it's helped me a lot. So you mentioned that you told some of the pathologists here that you were interested in teaching a bit when you were a student. Did any of their aspects of what they put into lectures or their style, do you see that now in the way that you teach? I do. Um, I I benefit a lot from not having all the notes in front of me. Uh, it helps me pay attention to have either a fill in the blank or some part of the lecture that you add on your own or that the students take notes on instead of just having this PowerPoint, this very wordy PowerPoint in front of you. Uh, so I try to do that in my lectures as well. And uh, any any amount of active learning, uh, I always learned the best from the pathologists that put that in their lectures. So I try to do that as well. Looking back then, are there different aspects of your teaching style that perhaps you learned during your residency? Yes. Um, also, my mentors there were big on active learning uh, and really cared a lot about how PowerPoints were arranged. So we, and we do this with our residents here as well, but we, before any presentation that we gave, we would all meet together as a group and uh, the practice giving the presentation or giving the PowerPoint and then go through it slide by slide and critique, um, take words out. So I really try to not put too many words on each slide and uh, that has really stuck with me. Able to hone it even further. Yes. Mm -hmm. It really sounds like you've been on this teaching path for quite a long time. Yeah, and it's it's crazy. I in the time during residency where I was thinking I'd purely be doing diagnostics, looking back on it, I have kind of always been gravitating towards it and seeking out opportunities to teach, even when I didn't think this would be my career. So it's it's kind of fun to just look back and, and think about what I used to want to do to what I'm doing now. Well, that prompts another question that I was really interested in asking you. Is it your impression that pathology trainees leave the residency on the same career path that they expected to when they began? No, I think it's rare. And I, I mean, I think that's what's great about our profession, veterinary medicine and pathology as well. There's so many different options that we can go to. Uh, so uh, I find that when we interview uh, students for our residency program, I, I think a lot of them are interested in academia. And I do, you know, un unfortunately or not see kind of a shift of many of our trainees not staying in academia, uh, which it's great. You have, there's a lot of different options in pathology and I want them to go into the career that best suits them. Uh, but I do feel like a lot of our trainees end up in diagnostics and that's probably because our program's really diagnostic heavy and they gain this love of diagnostics, which is great because uh, I love it too. But uh, I, it's really interesting to see kind of their path and how they decide and, and what they end up um, finding a passion for during residency. So it sounds like you inspire them to do academia and then also are able to foster their passions. That's really a wonderful quality that you're able to be that flexible. Yeah, I, I hope that that's what we're able to do. And, uh, you know, we have a, a combined program with PhD, so they're here for quite a while. But uh, we do allow them to continue to, to work in diagnostics after they take boards and they're in their lab, which I think really helps keep that drive uh, within them while they're finishing up PhD. Uh, and we really, I want them to to have the best career that they can. And I, I hope that we do that. That's our goal always is to have people leave here happy and get the jobs that they want. You've described that with the combined program 
that it's a bit more residency heavy in the beginning and then moves onto a PhD, more heavy component. How is that balanced when they move to the PhD component? Is there a breakdown? Yeah, great question. Um, The first year is very diagnostic heavy, and we have them rotate through various labs um, that they might be interested in that are, that have openings for students. And they do those rotations um, in the second half of their first year. And we ask that they try to pick a lab and kind of have that agreement by fall uh, in their second year. So once they do have a a lab identified and a PI, uh, they'll pick committee members and then they'll be about half and half. So expected to spend, you know, half of the time in lab and then half of the time on service uh, for their second year. And then that shifts a little bit in third year where they're on service even less and then in lab more. So after their three years, they're done with the residency portion. And then they'll study for boards uh, for phase two uh, board examination and and take that in the fall. And then they're 100% of the time in PhD land. They, if the P, their PI is comfortable with it, once they pass boards, we do allow them to read um, biopsy cases and they get paid per case, um, kind of like a, a consult or part-time person. So we do have two residents that do that right now that are in PhD and it just kind of helps with our extra biopsy cases and keeps them fresh. It is kind of nice for, for those that have a little bit of extra time and they'll read cases on the weekend or... Um, just uh, have the flexibility with choosing their own schedule when, when they want to read cases, and uh, it's, it works pretty well. That's a fantastic option to have. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, we have a lot of flexibility because everything is digitized here, so we have slide scanners, and I actually rarely use my microscope anymore, which is sad, but I, I have come to love digital pathology. So... Uh, our uh, students, our past residents that are in PhD, they can read cases from their lab. They don't have to come in or have a microscope. So it's really flexible. They'll just read cases at home on the weekend from their computer. And be able to help out, like you said, keeping their education fresh mm-hmm. and also continue to help the community. Yes, definitely. And help help us with our <laughs> extra caseload if, if we don't have enough pathologists to cover it. Because you have a huge caseload here. Yes. Yep. We have a lot of biopsies um, every day. We have a minimum of four pathologists scheduled for biopsy every day, um, taking what we consider a full load, caseload, um, 30 cases per pathologist. So we have around 100, 120 biopsies every day. So it's really a great resource for us that our past residents are interested in continuing to help us out and uh, look at cases. So it's a win-win It's my understanding that in addition to being a veterinary school, that you also are the state diagnostic lab. Can you talk about how that caseload breaks down for you and what that means for your everyday life? Sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it doesn't necessarily affect biopsy, I think, because it's just, um, we have clients from all over. So maybe that's, that adds to the caseload a little bit being the state lab, but uh, it does affect a lot of our other sections. Uh, so necropsy for one, uh, we do get all, for example, all of the legal cases in the state. So any case from a humane society or legal agency or kind of the only name in the game for the state. So we do get quite a few of those cases uh, for folks that are interested in forensics. Uh, we do also get Um, especially right now we're getting all of the rabies tests in the state. So we get, you know, anywhere from eight to 14 per day. So we've had to have vet students help us out with that. Uh, So that kind of affects, affects our caseload mostly. Uh, But it, it does, I think it gives us a better variety that so many people submit to us uh, in the surrounding areas. We get, cases from all over and Nebraska um, work closer for a lot of people in those neighboring states than their diagnostic lab. So we end up um, receiving those cases as well for necropsy and biopsy. Would those be more wildlife or do you get legal cases from them as well? 
Uh, we do sometimes get wildlife or, or legal cases. Or, for example, I tend to get legal cases from Nevada um, frequently or Las Vegas. So uh, I think just depending on where they are in the neighboring states, we might be closer for shipping and just a lab that they've heard of. So I think that's, that's kind of why they submit to us, but I'm not sure. Hey everyone, it's Hannah here. I just want to let you all know that the next section discusses forensics and animal abuse. If you don't prefer to hear this content, come back at 19 minutes and 35 seconds. How does that work? Do you know? And this might be a bit too in-depth. How does that work with the legality across state lines? Have you had to testify yet? Uh, so I haven't, uh, but I have. I do get subpoenaed pretty frequently, and it ends up um, where they often just settle outside of court. Uh, but my colleagues have had to go multiple times. It's, we like to say some of us are the lucky ones that their cases end up going to trial. And we're, you know, it's great that we can help help um, help with this um, and prosecute people that that you know are guilty, but, uh, I have not had uh, an out of state case go as far as even being subpoenaed, but we would have to travel if, if that's what happened. Um, have gotten kind of consult requests from other states where I didn't feel comfortable doing it. So I, I ended up not, not speaking to them about a case I wasn't familiar with, but, uh, you know, we do talk about that and uh, how you would have to travel if you get a case that goes to trial from another state, uh, which you know, they help us cover that and, and cover service and everything. But it's definitely something to think about. Thank you so much for advocating for these animals. That's an amazing and I'm sure very emotionally difficult job that, that you have you and your colleagues do. Did you get to experience those cases during your veterinary schooling or is that residents and pathologists? Yeah, great question. Uh, we, I allow students and residents to help with legal cases and we actually have quite a few vet students that I've seen come through that have intre- interest in forensics or at least animal welfare. So the students are interested in just learning about the process and we, you know, we take additional photos and additional documentation for the legal cases. So if they're interested, I'm happy to have them help. Uh, but we do just, uh, when we submit the reports, we keep, we keep the residents names off of them so they don't get subpoenaed. Uh, so the pathologist will be the, be the one having to, to go to trial if it goes that far. Right. And ultimately there, you are the responsible one. Exactly. Yep. Um, and when I was a vet student, we didn't have this course, but now, uh, in there's a shelter medicine elective that we have here for veterinary students. And, uh, one of my colleagues teaches a few lectures on forensics and, has some you know case examples and uh, what goes into the the forensic or legal necropsy at least here. Uh, so uh, we and we have kind of a quiz that our vet students will do online during their postmortem rotation. If and so they do get exposed to that if they don't take the elective during their normal curriculum. Were you also exposed to forensic pathology during your residency? I was. Um, we same same kind of uh, situation during my residency where we students and residents could help with the legal cases, but then ultimately the pathologist was the responsible one. Um, and then over the years, I've kind of sought out CE or continuing continuing education on it, just because I it's it is a big responsibility. Uh, you know, most of what we do as pathologists. Uh, you know, we're very responsible for our diagnoses, but legal cases, the, the thought of, you know, being the determining factor if someone's prosecuted, uh, definitely want to get as much education as I can. So if we have, you know, um, meeting workshops or additional talks at ACBP, I usually try to attend those. It's Hannah again. This is the end of the sensitive content. Now back to the interview. So not only are you passionate about teaching your veterinary students and continuing your own education, but you are part of a very special ACVP committee on this same topic. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm on the lifelong learning committee. So we help plan webinars, uh, and also the ACVP mentorship program. Um, so we all discuss, we meet once a month and discuss kind of the schedule for the next year on different webinar topics. We use uh, feedback from the college on what everyone would like to hear as a webinar, uh, and then uh, try to accommodate that. What is your approach in finding individuals to give lectures and finding topics? So it's it's been really nice to be on this committee because I joined I joined during the pandemic uh, where you know we're kind of stuck in our bubble. So it's nice to talk to individuals at different um, that work in different places, different areas of the country. Uh, we have you know variety. We have people that are in talks path, in academia, in diagnostics. Uh, so I think collectively we have a lot of, uh, connections and, and know a lot of people. So usually if someone has an idea about a webinar, someone else, Oh, I know someone who knows a lot about that or who would love to talk. Let me reach out and ask them. So it's fairly easy. And we, we all, we meet virtually, um, and have our webcams on. So easy to kind of brainstorm and just, we just kind of write a list of people that we think might be interested in. And someone takes on that project or that webinar and is responsible for reaching out. So it's been uh, fairly easy to come up with, come up with um, folks that would want to talk about topics. Uh, we uh, have a person that's really interested in wellness. So they usually come up with wellness topics uh, that we can present. Uh, so that one is a little bit more challenging to find speakers because they're usually not pathologists. So that takes a little bit more, uh, on that side, knowing, knowing someone that would talk about a wellness topic, but uh, I feel like it is a small college and everyone knows someone that is, uh, has a certain specialty, uh, but it's, it's, it's been a really fun committee and I, I love kind of the brainstorming aspect and planning and deciding what topics. Even if they don't come from a veterinary pathology background, having that wellness aspect is incredibly important. I think so too. And I, or I think, you know, every, everyone should be focusing on that. Uh, I think, you know, previously and in, in previous times, it wasn't a focus and it was kind of a work until you drop mentality. Uh, and we, I think collectively as a profession, uh, we should be taking time to think about, to think about different topics in wellness. And just discussing it and having yep. these webinars mm -hmm. hopefully will be a platform for people to begin those conversations. Yeah, I think sometimes, uh, especially, you know, if you work remotely or, uh, or a little bit more isolated, then you may be feeling that you're the only one experiencing this issue, whatever it is. So I think it's a good platform to kind of uh, help people relate and recognize, oh, everyone else has the same feeling of whatever it is, burnout or, you know, issues with work-life balance. Uh, so uh, I think just as many people as we can reach is important. Thank you from yeah. all of us for, you know, expanding the community and helping with our MOC. I'd like to circle back to the rabies. How does that work with having students on your floor? Do they need to be vaccinated? Are there special procedures? Yeah. Uh, so all our vet students are vaccinated during their first year of veterinary school. So, um, you know, technically they can be around uh, cases that are suspected of rabies. But uh, just as an extra precaution, we don't allow students to sample uh, brains for for rabies or that there's a, a suspicion of rabies. Uh, we do a separate biosecurity necropsy floor. So that's uh, where we're doing all the, the sampling with those suspect cases. And we also uh, wait for results uh, almost always before we complete the rest of the exam. Um, sometimes large animals, pathologists will decide to to just finish the exam just to avoid autolysis, especially over a weekend. Um, but we're, we're pretty cautious about that. Uh, our technicians do a lot of the sampling. Uh, we get titers every other year. We can 
show them on a, a non rabies suspect brain too, if they want to know how, what sample we take, but we do make sure they can remove heads and during the postmortem because that's, they can submit those to us and we'll do the rest. Absolutely. So you've seemed to focus on rabies. Is there an, a particular increase in cases at, at this time? It feels like it, and I'm not sure if that's just because we're getting a lot more cases now. Uh, we're taking cases from the Colorado Department of Public Health as they renovate their lab, so our case numbers have doubled. So I do feel like we've had more positives uh, lately, but that might just be because we're performing more tests. Uh, the summer months usually get get more positives than um, fall and winter just because of migration of bats, I think. Um, so uh, that's so I do feel like that's increased just in the last few months. But um, we've also just been getting double our double our normal caseload. It's always fascinating to be able to look back and see how diseases shift over time. You know, even the two of us relatively early in our career. But another great thing that you have is being able to compare the different geographic locations. How do the lesions that you see differ between other places that you practiced? Sure. Yep. So I, uh, I trained at University of Tennessee, so in the southeast, where we saw many infectious disease cases, fungus, parasites, um, all the all the fun infectious cases. Whereas here in Colorado, it's very dry. Uh, we're in the high desert, uh, so we rarely see uh, infectious fungal or parasitic cases. Uh, it's fun. We also don't have to deal with fleas um, rarely. So even without using flea protection, many if a case comes in the teaching hospital, a dog that has fleas, all the students want to look at it because many of them have not seen fleas, which kind of blows my mind living in other locations in the U.S., uh, so whenever we do have an infectious case, fungus or parasites, we make sure all the residents come and see it or we share it on uh, on one of our weekly rounds so everyone can see. Everyone wants recuts of the slides. And uh, it was just such a common, common occurrence where I trained. So it's still kind of kind of funny to think about uh, here where we see neoplasia uh, most often. Do you think that your familiarity then with these infectious diseases that you gained in Tennessee influences how you are able to teach here? Yes. And actually, uh, one of our, a previous resident here who he, he now is primary, he works here too, but he's primarily research and teaches in undergrad, but he was a resident when I was a veterinary student and he had, uh, gone to veterinary school in Georgia and our residents will meet with uh, the student pathology club and do slide rounds or 10-headed scope sessions and show them interesting cases. And he showed a bunch of slides that he had gotten as a vet student in Georgia. So he had a uh, prototheca algae slide and pythium and all these diseases that we don't even spend much time learning about in school here. Uh, so that kind of inspired me to to train in the southeast. So I only applied to residency programs in that geographic area. Uh, as you know, being in veterinary school in Colorado, I really wanted to train elsewhere and just get that experience of infectious disease that we unfortunately don't see very much of here. I bet your colleagues are very thankful that you know you left to get that experience and now can help bolster the program. Yeah, it's nice. We we have you know some folks that have been here a long time, and but also one of our pathologists is uh, trained in Oregon, and then I trained in Tennessee, and we we do have a varied background, which really helps with consulting on cases. Absolutely, your colleagues and you have brought different components into your program, but when you get a new student whether that's in veterinary school or a pathology trainee, they also bring something in. What inspires you most about your students? So what I love most, especially veterinary students, and what will really make me pay attention to that student is uh, 
so many of our students that are on postmortem rotation during their clinical year, they don't aspire to be a pathologist, which I get it. It's not for everyone, but I just really want them to to be excited or, or gain as much as they can from learning about pathology. So that's, that what's, that's what strikes me the most, a student that may have not been excited about that rotation, but every, every new case that they see, they learn as much as they can from it. And at the end of the rotation, we'll say, wow, I didn't think I would love this, but it was so great to see everything in person and touch it and review anatomy. Um, so I just really, I really value enthusiasm and in whatever you're learning and, uh, same with residents. So not every resident likes diagnostics. Um, we were talking a lot about diagnostics earlier, but I just want them to, to gain as much as they can with every new experience, um, as they, as they go through residency or, or veterinary school. There are obvious differences between your interaction between a veterinary student and then a resident, you know, uh, education level, and then the amount of time and interest shared between them with your residents. Is there something specific about them that then inspires you and helps you do your job better? Yes. I am continuously impressed by our residents and think back to, to me as a resident and, and wonder if I would be, if I was as hardworking or uh, as intelligent <laughs> as them, uh, just the things that they notice about cases or the and the work that they put into every report and into their studying is um, really impressive. Uh, and I I love hearing about their different ways of of approaching a topic or remembering, and uh, some of the the ways that they approach learning a certain topic I've used in my teaching of vet students because I think it, it made more sense uh, and you know different learning styles and study habits that I wasn't necessarily exposed to and since we work so much closer together than than working with veterinary students I think we get to know their habits a little bit more uh, and time management skills and I've definitely adopted some of some of the ways that they keep track of uh, their cases or just the way that they kind of outline a topic has, it's been really, uh, really beneficial. Um, whereas like when you're a resident yourself, you're not, you're, you have resident mates, but you're not necessarily teaching residents. Um, maybe when you're a third year. So that I think was a, a bigger transition for me when I started this this position is teaching residents compared to veterinary students. So I think I've learned the most from our residents uh, in my time here. But I have a few times had to adjust my teaching style for individual students or residents. And I think just, you know, spending time to, to really think about, uh, think about their background and recognizing that they probably have things that they can teach me as well with their experience and just kind of coming at it from that mindset, recognize, uh, how important everyone's backgrounds are and, and they, they may have had a career that they could teach me something as well. We're all humans and we all have something to share. And yeah. no matter what that person is able to bring in, if you're able to work together, which it sounds like you very successfully have with a number of students, then we'll just make for a better pathology community. Agreed. Yep. I think, I think just anyone that you interact with just trying to think that they probably have something that you could learn from them is a good way to go about life. Having said that, are there any phrases or words that you caution your residents not to use? <laughs> yes. So I have relaxed on this a little bit, but when I first started, and this is from just from my training, um, I had some mentors that really hated admixed. Um, so when I first started, I would delete it from every, every description, every histopath description from every resident. And they knew that about me. Uh, so they would slowly, you know, not, not put that in any report. And then, um, uh, I've since backed off on that. Uh, and I, I will 
give them suggestions on other ways to to phrase a description, but I won't delete it. So there's more than one right way to describe something, and if you want to use admixed, you can. Uh, but some I have a few others that I that I won't back down on. Um, the you know, in color won't do red in color. Red is a color. That one I won't back down on. And these all come from from my residency training. Uh, and then I also don't um, clipped versus shaved. Um, so clipped with clippers versus shaved with a razor. So in gross in gross reports, I change it all to clipped. So, because we describe um, clipped or shaved areas on animals where maybe they clipped for um, IV catheter, and we have students and residents measure those for our gross reports. Um, so, I'll change it all to clipped from shaved. <laughs> so, those are kind of my small pet peeves. <laughs> Unless I'm sure, you know, now that you say that, next week you're going to have a case that was shaved with a straight razor. <laughs> I know, I mean, but it's pretty rare. So, it's almost always going to be clippers. <laughs> I love that. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing. <laughs> Apologies if this is a dense question. Why do you have your students measure clipped areas? <laughs> yeah, so even even in our regular diagnostic cases, we just have them be really detailed in their external exam. Uh, we, you know, when animals are placed in our facility for postmortem exam, we ask that they're are labeled properly with some sort of identification, uh, but mistakes happen. You might get three black labs from the same veterinary clinic, and maybe somewhere along the transport, uh, tags were misplaced, collars, some they might not be microchipped. So uh, we try to be really detailed about anything external on the body. Um, so even, you know, which limb the IV catheter was in, uh, just so if, you know, a client reads that and they come back and say, this dog did not have an IV catheter, it didn't have a clipped area on its chest, then we can kind of go back and, and make sure that we uh, necropsied the correct animal or that we're reporting findings on the correct animal. That's a great aspiration to have just no matter what, being yep. a pathologist, being as detailed as possible, it's only going to help you. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think you know, being necropsy section head has given me a new appreciation for that because if we do have some sort of labeling error, then that eventually comes to me to kind of work out. So I'm very vigilant now about, about reporting external findings. Um, and that's just kind of how I was trained too. So it's, we definitely have students, um, measure everything. Both here and in Tennessee. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Very similar. I've, which it made me happy when I started here that it didn't have to adjust, um, very much at all. Um, my, my normal kind of necropsy protocol, it's pretty similar between the two. So that's nice. Yeah. And being the head, have you been able to make adjustments that you think fit your personality and style of managing? Yes. Um, definitely changed uh, kind of the role that our technicians have. Uh, so our technicians help with the necropsy exam and they can, they can do necropsies on their own. Uh, so kind of prosect for us which uh, when I started, they, they weren't. Uh, so that's been really helpful with our high caseload that technicians can be out there and um, answering questions about at least the, the protocol um, for students or helping them uh, get started when they're a little bit hesitant at the beginning. Uh, and that's something uh, that the technicians did during my residency training too. Uh, and we have great, we have great um, staff, great technicians now they're experienced enough that they can do a lot of the training and, you know, just kind of ask any of the pathologists. So I don't have to do too much of that now, but in the beginning, yes. Uh, and I kind of, whenever they, when we have a new person start, I just have them, you know, help with multiple and not just from me. It's good to learn from other pathologists as well. And, um, just ask, you know, any nuances and, and little pet peeves or different ways that people want to do things. Uh, so they're aware of all that with our many, many pathologists. 
for an average day, when you're on the necropsy floor, how many people are you working with? So we have a, a pretty large veterinary class size at Colorado. Um, so we have like 160 students, I think, per class size, which is kind of up there. So we have around, usually around seven veterinary students on necropsy every day, and then one to two residents, and then we have three full-time technicians, um, four undergraduate students. So it could be, you know, 10 to 12 people uh, out on the necropsy floor every day and some level of teaching um, with, with most of them, at least the students and the residents. What role do the undergrad students have? So we, they do a lot of cleaning for us, but uh, the more experienced ones, and we have students that want that aspire to be veterinarians, so they want to learn. So I have them help with necropsies as well. That's amazing that you are able to spread the gospel yeah. of pathology because it's incredible to undergrads. Do you think that some of those individuals will then have more of a proclivity to go into pathology? I try. Um, I, I joke with them that we're going to convert them. Uh, but so far, no. But I uh, did have a technician who worked here for a few, or he worked here for a year before he started veterinary school. And he wanted to go into aquatic medicine. And now he wants to be a pathologist. So he's actually um, shadowing over the summer um, before he goes back to school. So definitely had a, a big convert that's already in veterinary school. So I joke with the undergrads. I have one that wants to be a, a zoo vet, I think. Yeah, zoo and wildlife. But I'm going to convince him to be a pathologist. That's the joy of our field, right? That they can do those things as a pathologist. That's and what I tell him. easier. <laughs> That's what I tell him. Like, you're going to have to do necropsies anyway. So it's good to learn how to do it now. And you just should be a pathologist. Yeah. How do you translate that then to your work and your relationship with residents? Yeah, uh, we we really promote work-life balance with them. Um, and we've a few times we've had to, you know, have conversations with residents that we see here in the lab too much uh, where like, you're doing a great job. Is everything okay? Like, please go home, take some time. Um, Cause we, you know, we, it's a, we want this to be a lifelong career and for them to be successful. Uh, I see, you know, in other uh, specialties or um, in veterinary medicine, people, burning out after just a few years and getting a career, a completely different career. Uh, and I would you know, hate to see that in any of our residents. So try to kind of promote a good balance, even in residency. It doesn't have to be here 12 hours a day. Like that's just not sustainable. So um, try to, you know, meet with our residents and make sure that they're taking time to explore Colorado and especially the ones that aren't from here. And, uh, most of our residents are climbers and have a lot of really fun hobbies. So try to really promote that in them. Um, you know, it's, you can still get your work done and do things outside of work. So, uh, it's, it's important to all of us here. Thank you so much for advocating for that. It definitely is an easy hole to fall into is in academia. And I'm sure, other areas to just work those 12 hours a day. Right. So it's important for them to have someone like you and your colleagues to recognize that. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, no, thanks. I, I, I want our residents to be happy and, and stay happy and maybe stay in academia. <laughs> <laughs> it is great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I love it. I, I couldn't imagine a, a better job. I just, uh, the variety and uh, being able to teach, but also focus on diagnostics is, is perfect for me. Talking about hobbies and life outside of work, this is a marriage of the two, of work and life, but you and I have something in common. We both have a microscope tattooed onto our body. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what drove that decision for you? Uh, so, you know, I tend to, when I, you know, pick, or think about tattoo ideas, like I'm going to get something that's, you know, important to me. And, you know, we were just talking about work-life balance, but, um, you know, I love my job and I love being a pathologist. So I, I got this during residency and just kind of feeling at home, um, in this career, uh, 
you know, I, veterinary medicine, it's amazing. I, I, but I, you know, I started vet school wanting to be a zoo vet, uh, and, uh, actually work in private practice and look at people's birds and lizards and stuff. And, um, I, when I kind of discovered pathology as a career, it really, it was a settling feeling to find, um, you know, something that you're passionate about. So, uh, during, I think it was my second year is when I got the microscope tattoo. And you described that that's also when you got the spark. Yeah. And it, yeah. And I mean, this was second year of residency. Oh, residency. Yep. So Apologies. yeah, exactly. Um, so I had the spark already, but I just, I, I loved residency training. I, I thought it was really a fun time in my life and, um, just was happy to be learning what I'm passionate about. So and that really speaks to your mentors then at mm-hmm. Tennessee. Yep, definitely. Yeah. They I I think they taught me that it's okay to be excited about pathology and I think you know we have to it's a balance on out on the necropsy floor, right? Um you know, they they're deceased animals and they were people's pets, but I think in that setting it's okay to be excited about a lesion you've never seen before or finding finding the answer for them. So uh, and, and everyone I worked with in Tennessee would, you know, show, weren't afraid to show their excitement about pathology. So I know that you worked with veterinary students, both in Tennessee and now at Colorado. And that's great to hear. That's, I like to foster that mm-hmm. <laughs> on the necropsy floor, but do you find that you ever need to pull that back when you have veterinary students on the floor that might not be that way? Yes. Um, and I, I'm pretty cognizant of it and just, I mean, I can be excited, but, um, you know, just we're always respectful, but, um, I've definitely found some groups of students have different attitudes towards necropsy or might have, might struggle with it a little bit more than others. So I can kind of read, read the room, uh, when I meet a group of students, uh, and, you know, just make sure that everyone understands that we're not excited that the animal is deceased. We're just excited about, uh, a disease process that we haven't seen before that we haven't seen in a long time. And that usually, uh, gets them excited about it too, um, about something that they learned about in class, but have only seen a, a grainy picture of, or, um, something that they saw in a living animal and, and they get to actually touch and feel and, and think about, um, the pathogenesis, uh, in person. So haven't had too many issues with that. Uh, and usually can get students excited about anything. <laughs> right. And then, you know, you can explain to them that even if it is difficult for, mm-hmm. for that individual to be in a necropsy, this is how they learn. And this is how you learn to help more animals. Right. Yep. I usually have, uh, you know, especially if I'm, uh, with a group of students that's early on in their rotation, just make sure that they understand we want them to, to get as much as they can about the rotation. We recognize that they're not training to be a pathologist, but, uh, we want them to learn about a disease that they've been wanting to learn, um, more about or study for NAVLI or go into depth on, any, anything. So, uh, and I think that goes a long way with kind of easing their, um, trepidation about, about necropsy. Uh, cause I, I, I want students to, to have a good experience and, and really learn what they need to learn, but also take the time to, to get excited again about, about medicine, uh, or about disease. I think, uh, veterinary students get pretty bogged down during clinical year and, they can have really long hours and, and kind of lose, lose that passion or that focus. So I try to bring that back a little bit. And I'm sure that they do see your excitement and it does make them, gives them the room to be more engaged and get that passion back. And also what you were speaking to also exemplifies this wellness and mental health aspect that you spoke about before. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I, and kind of when we talk, we're talking about, um, you know, students that are, uh, 
my same age or, uh, I think, um, I can still relate. I still, you know, remember being a veterinary student and doing these long hours and kind of, um, losing that drive a little bit, just feeling like I have a whole other half year of this. If you have a really grueling rotation with really long hours. So I hope that they can, you know, enjoy neat, the postmortem rotation and get, get a little bit of evenings off or just spend a little bit of time on reports at night, not being up till late hours. And we usually give them a long lunch and they can go home and walk their dog. And, uh, so I, I, I hope that they leave, leave us feeling a little refreshed and have learned something. The joys of pathology. Yes. (laughs) Well, I have loved talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and, I'm really excited to see where you go from here because it's very obvious that you already are a great influence on your students of all areas in their career. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me and for coming to CSU. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, everyone out there, for listening. This has been a conversation in veterinary pathology with Dr. Allison Watson, and we look forward to next time. We really want to thank Dr. Allison Watson for sitting down and having a conversation with us. If you attended the 2023 ACVP and ASVCP annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois, October 28th through 31st, 2023, we hope you enjoyed the meeting and learned a lot. For those who stopped by to chat with us, thank you so much for your time. And to those connections we made, we look forward to our future conversations. As always, this podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts and at acvppodcast.podbean.com. That's acvppodcast.podbean.com. If you have suggestions for who we should interview next, you can send those to info at acvp.org. Thanks for listening.